What up, family? It's episode 102 of The Genius Life. Welcome aboard. What's going on, everybody? Hope you guys are all doing well, that you're all safe and healthy and uh, warm and well-fed and have got plenty of toilet paper to go around. Um, I'm super excited for this episode of the show in which I interview uh, one of my friends, a neuroscientist and uh, a leader in the field of Alzheimer's and dementia prevention, Dr. Lisa Mosconi. Dr. Mosconi is the director of the Women's Brain Initiative and associate director of the Alzheimer's Prevention Clinic at Weill Cornell Medical College, New York Presbyterian Hospital, where she serves as an associate professor of neuroscience in neurology and radiology. She's also an adjunct faculty member at the Department of Psychiatry at NYU School of Medicine and at the Department of Nutrition at NYU Steinhardt School of Nutrition and Public Health. So this girl's got some credentials, yo, and... Uh, I'm really excited because she also is a newly minted New York Times bestselling author. She came out with her first book, Brain Food, which came out around the same time as my book, Genius Foods, um, and that was a great book. Uh, but her latest book, I think, is just a game changer in so many ways because it focuses squarely on the topic of women's brains, which is super important for a number of reasons, not least of which the fact that women are at double the risk of developing um, Alzheimer's disease and other forms of dementia as men. For every male with Alzheimer's disease, you have two women. And of course, you know, I was personally affected by this, the fact that my mom had uh, dementia. So her book is super important and um, and it's called The XX Brain. And as soon as it came out, it became a New York Times bestseller because it's such a unique book. And she is so smart and sweet and lovely and uh, I just had such a blast talking to her about all things prevention. We discuss her favorite brain antioxidants and where to find them in food, the value of being properly hydrated for the brain and how to make sure that you're properly hydrated, the brain dangers of um, environmental toxins that you're probably exposed to every day, conventional versus organic from the standpoint of the brain, and so much more. So please listen carefully and then share this episode with your friends and loved ones. This episode of the show is brought to you by Shrooms. I'm a big fan of Four Sigmatic. They create a line of coffees and elixirs and lattes, all using mushrooms like uh, lion's mane or reishi or chaga. Chaga has been called the king of mushrooms. Uh, people have been using it for hundreds, if not thousands of years, um, and it's been purported to possess immune-supporting properties. Um, and so I really enjoy combining reishi with a little chaga sometimes. If it's, uh, you know, in the morning, I'll maybe use their lion's mane, which has cognition boosting, um, has been suggested to possess cognition boosting properties. So I'm a huge fan of their products. I also like their coffees, which are organic. All Four Sigmatic products are vegan. They're gluten-free. Every single batch is tested in a third-party lab for heavy metals, allergens, yeast, mold, mycotoxins, and pesticides, all to ensure their purity and safety. There's a lot of mushroom brands on the market now, um, and I'm sure many of them are great, but I personally use Four Sigmatic. Um, they stand by their quality. All of their products have a 100% money-back guarantee. Um, so if you want to give uh, any of these quote-unquote medicinal mushrooms to try, all you got to do is go to foursigmatic.com slash max or use promo code max and you'll get to save a whopping 15% off of anything and everything in their online store. And this is a code that you can use again and again. This isn't just for first time customers. So go to head over to foursigmatic.com slash max or use that promo code max uh, and you'll get to save uh, a chunk of cheddar and you'll also be supporting the show by doing so. So um, yeah, thanks for Sigmatic and uh, forcingmatic.com slash max, promo code max, 15% off. Before we dive in, you guys, did you know that I have a newsletter? That's right. If you go over to maxlugavere.com, that's M-A-X-L-U-G-A-V-E-R-E.com, you can sign up for my newsletter, which I send out once a week or once every other week, packed with product recommendations, um, book recommendations, for example, exclusive discounts, updates on um, my projects and can't miss episodes of the show, and so much more more. There are thousands of people, tens of thousands of people at this point all around the world deriving real value from my newsletter. And just for signing up at maxlugavere.com, I'm going to send you a list of 
10 supplements that you can use to potentially boost your brain function. Um, it's a free PDF um, that I send out for anybody that signs up. So all you got to do is go to maxlugavir.com, enter your email address, and then check your email. And you know, you're going to get that PDF of 10 supplements that you could use to uh, boost your brain function. So Look forward to connecting with you over there. I also have a text message community. If you live in the US or Canada, you can send uh, a text message. You can just say hi to 310-299-9401. I get all of your messages directly to my phone and um, I'm responding to about five to 10 a day. I can't possibly get to every single one, but if you text me, there's a good, there's a, I mean, I, it's guaranteed to be read by me and uh, I do my best to, um, respond to as many as I can. So if you really want to be on that genius train, you guys get on the newsletter, maxlugavir.com and be a part of my text message community. You can opt out of either, uh, whenever you want. I don't give your information to anybody else. I don't spam. And, um, yeah, I just, you know, I'm always looking for new ways to deepen the relationship that I have with you. So thank you very much. And now without further ado, I'm excited to get into this discussion with, the one and only Dr. Lisa Moscone. What's rock? Lisa Moscone, thank you so much for being with me on The Genius Life. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited for your book because it's, I mean, it's, it's groundbreaking in so many ways, but it really puts the spotlight on the female brain and why it seems to be the case that women are at double the risk of developing Alzheimer's and, and cognitive decline uh, as men, which is insane. Yeah. So crazy. I agree. Yes, as a woman, I, I, I agree with you. Yeah. Well, you've dedicated your career to this. You're one of the foremost researchers in the space. So, I mean, before we get into the nitty gritty, we'd love if you could just share a little bit of your background with my audience. Sure. Yes, of course. I, I'm a neuroscientist. I have a dual PhD in neuroscience and nuclear medicine, which is really code for radiology. Uh, with radioactive dyes or brain imaging, probably. And I've been looking at brains for almost 20 years. I started really, really young because I always wanted to look at brains, but also I have a family history of Alzheimer's disease that affects the women in my family. Like for starters, my grandmother was one of four siblings, three sisters and one brother, and all three sisters got Alzheimer's disease and died of it, oh whereas the brother did not, even though they all lived to the same age. So, of course, that's a small data set. It was just me and my family, but I started looking into that and I, I learned that I'm not alone in this. And really, statistically, that represents the population large because today almost two-thirds of all Alzheimer's patients are actually women. So that means that for every man suffering from Alzheimer's, because we don't want to obviously not talk about male patients with Alzheimer's, but for every man with Alzheimer's, there are two women. And that's a lot of people because like, obviously, you know this very well, we, almost, we have almost 6 million Alzheimer's patients in the United States alone. And these numbers are expected to triple by the year 2050 with a projected 15 million Alzheimer's patients, which is for, for context, this is really like the population of New York City, Los Angeles and Chicago put together. So it's a huge number of people and two thirds are most likely going to be women. That's, I mean, that's heartbreaking. It's obviously a public health crisis. I think one of the myths that uh, you dismantle very early on in your new book is that women are not just at higher risk because they live longer. Is that correct? Right. Yes. So that's the pushback that I, I received for many, many years. So back then, I, you know, I started looking into that and I, I would ask, is there a reason for this? Why is it that more women than men have Alzheimer's disease? And the answer was always, well, you know, women live longer than men and Alzheimer's disease is a disease of old age. So it's pretty much obvious that more women than men have Alzheimer's disease. And for a little while, I was like, huh, well, that kind of makes sense, right? But it doesn't because number one, women don't live that much longer than men. In the United States, women outlive men by four, four and a half years, not 20, right? In countries like in England, the age gap is two years. And still, Alzheimer's disease is the number one cause of dementia or death for women and not for men. But the most important thing is that Alzheimer's disease is not actually a disease of old age. And we learned that 
not even 10 years ago, that this disease starts with negative changes in the brain years, if not decades, prior to the clinical symptoms. So that really puts us back in midlife. And that completely changed the question to, okay, so what happens in midlife to women and not to men that could potentially trigger an Alzheimer's disease risk? And our studies, because we do a lot of brain imaging studies in people who are middle-aged, our studies really showed that women tend to develop Alzheimer's disease earlier than men in their brains, and that that really overlaps with menopause, which was quite shocking, actually, because as a brain person, I, I was really not trained to think about hormones to start with. They're like two different things, right? There's your brain, and then there's the reproductive system, and we're just not used to thinking that these two are connected and that the aging of the reproductive system really impacts the aging of the brain as well, especially in women. I mean, I think that that's as what you just paint. The picture that you just painted for us illustrates the problem with the field at large is that brain problems are, are too often uh, thought to be problems of the brain. And what you're saying is that for women, it might actually be a problem that begins in the body that influences the brain. In this case, yes. And I, I think it's really fascinating in some ways that we, we usually miss these connections, right? We, we think of the brain as some organ that is isolated from the rest of the body. It is in charge of the rest of the body, but kind of unaffected by what goes on in our lives or outside of our heads. And the research really has shown how the brain is in constant interaction with the other organs. And especially for women, the interactions between the brain and the reproductive organs are really crucial to brain aging. And that is interesting in so many different ways, in part because it really speaks to Western medicine's tendency to just look at one organ at a time rather than systems. And I, I think we should really change the approach towards a more systematic understanding of the female body, but also the male body, really. We, we don't do that enough. And at the same time, it really kind of shifts the focus on our hormones as something that, is, that are just not involved in reproduction, but also in brain function. And I, I realized that for many people, this is just not common knowledge, right? We always think about our sex hormones, understandably, as implicated in our fertility or our ability to have kids or infertility with menopause and andropause for men. Um, but it's really important to, to refocus attention on that because our sex hormones are not just serving reproductive functions. They're also really involved with brain function and especially brain energy. If there is a, if there are different potential causes for Alzheimer's in, in females that there are for males, I mean, is the disease possibly different depending on if you're a male or a female? Or is that mm. just, have we not yet explored that? I would say we have not yet explored that. And just for context, we show that menopause um, influences Alzheimer's risk in women just two years ago. And I, I would say that sex differences in Alzheimer's disease have been really overlooked forever hmm. wow. until very, very recently. What we know is that in terms of symptoms, it's very hard to catch them in women. And that is because women have better verbal memory than men to start with, where verbal memory is the ability to remember things we were just told, right? I think wow. any woman would be like, yeah. Yeah, we're better at that. <laughs> men, men are obviously, we're not as good at that. <laughs> Perhaps just not as focused, I don't know. <laughs> but that is a problem in some ways because the cognitive testing that we do for the early detection of Alzheimer's is heavily reliant on tests that look at verbal memory especially. And women tend to outperform men. Hmm. So it's kind of hard to say well, you have a problem, it's more like, mm, you're borderline. You know, I'm not sure because the norms that we use were derived on studies that didn't look at men as separate from women. These studies tend to lump men and women together and then kind of remove the effects of sex using statistical procedures. There are some gender-based normative values, but they're kind of 
they're not very specific and, and the tests are just not sensitive enough, I think, to really catch cognitive declines in women early, early enough. What we do know from imaging studies is that if you look at a male patient and the, and the female patient with the same exact degree of dementia severity, the female's brain is more advanced, the pathology is more advanced. And that's been interpreted as it takes more pathology, it takes more brain damage for women to actually show the cognitive symptoms. Hmm. And therefore, we get diagnosed later. Like you're mild cognitively, but your brain is actually more affected than that of a man of your same age and dementia severity. What, so we have a bit of a problem here. Interesting. But it, so why, how is it the case that the female brain is more, is more resilient? I'm not sure if it's resilient or is compensating. Hmm. I think most, most people believe that there are some compensatory mechanisms that, that really kick in. And I, I think that if you combine that with the fact that the tests are not as sensitive, I think that the problem is really with the diagnostic workup of dementia and early dementia, just cognitive testing is not sensitive enough to early Alzheimer's and especially so in women, which is why I personally advocate for brain imaging, especially in women, but also men, of course, and as soon as possible, because that really can tell us what's going on in a person's brain, even though the symptoms may not be as clear cut, right? But if you see that there's Alzheimer's pathology in their brain and there's uh, reductions in brain activity and your neurons are dying, your brain is shrinking, then it doesn't matter if you have the symptoms or not, right? As soon as there's treatment available, I would argue that we should intervene. And of course, then we can talk about prevention and all the things that you've been doing for a long time. Uh, I want to talk about prevention. What Just be- <laughs> before we um, move on, what type of imaging are you talking about? Like MRIs that might look at brain volume? We do a lot of brain scans and um, MRI scans are part of what we do and what most people do, they're not nearly as sensitive as another technique that is called positron emission tomography or PET, which is what I do. It's a nuclear medicine-based technique that enables us to look at whether or not the neurons are active and there's brain energy, which is very important because it really declines very early in Alzheimer's disease. It's it's an early sign of Alzheimer's disease if you can catch uh, reductions in brain glucose metabolism in specific regions. But most importantly, PET scans allow us to detect presence of amyloid plaques or Alzheimer's plaques, which are a major hallmark of Alzheimer's disease. And we can also now look at tau proteins, like neurofibrillary tangles inside the neurons. And these two are really what you need to make a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. You need to have Alzheimer's plaques or amyloid plaques, neurofibrillary tangles or tau pathology, and also brain shrinkage or neuronal loss. So if you have all three, your chance of developing Alzheimer's are incredibly high. Yeah, super interesting. Um, and are these kinds of tests covered by people's insurance or is it? Um, nope. No. Not at all. No, they're only available for research at this point. The amulet scans are available if you already have a diagnosis, especially if, you, if your doctor is not so sure. If you have Alzheimer's disease, a Lewy body dementia or another form of dementia, then they can prescribe um, a PET scan for differential diagnosis. Uh, in some cases, also to make a diagnosis, which is very helpful. And in that case, uh, it's up to your insurance, but often enough, they do not cover these costs yet, but we're we're heading in that direction. Um, They're not available for preventative care. And of course, we're all hoping that 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 will change soon. And what what we're doing now uh, in particular is to really try and validate this kind of technology for prevention of Alzheimer's disease. We want to show that there is a predictive value and that the costs um, are, are warranted in a way because, of course, they're, they're expensive procedures, but I think the sooner we can catch presence of Alzheimer's disease or even just Alzheimer's risk, the sooner we can prevent it or at least mitigate the risk. And that should be enormous benefit to patients and also to society by reducing the costs 
associated with this disease, which are really prohibitive and they're escalating pretty fast. Yeah. Can you just repeat the tests again? So one is it looks at brain volume, but then you look at amyloid and you also look at tau. Are those the three or was there one that I'm missing? These are the, the three okay. main tests. So we have MRI scans to look at brain shrinkage or neuronal loss. And then we have positron emission tomography, PET, to look at amyloid plaques and tau pathology. They're two different tracers, so you need to do two different scans. Hmm. What about, I mean, like, I mean, w- glucose metabolism in the brain, wouldn't that be, wouldn't that, I mean, my understanding is that would have pretty high predictive value for yes. determining. Yes, I, I actually, I love those scans. That's the very first type of scan I've ever done. And I've, I've been doing FDG, they're called FDG or fluorodeoxyglucose uh, PET scans that really look at brain energy levels in the brain, and they are very sensitive to neuronal loss. So mm. if you, when your neurons die, they don't just all of a sudden disappear. They, they lose their synapses first and their little arms and twigs, if you will. If you think about the neuron like a tree, first you lose the branches and then you lose um, the main part of the tree, and neurons kind of die the same way. And it's very hard to see that using imaging because they're so small and the resolution that we have is not, it's not you know, high enough. But then if you do this kind of PET scan, which is called FDG PET, you can see whether there is a reduction in brain energy levels, which is very often related to neuronal loss, to this process of pruning that is happening to your neurons. Um, it's a very sensitive test in that metabolic reductions are predictive of future Alzheimer's disease with over 80% accuracy. That's However, amazing. I know it's amazing, but they're not specific. That's the problem. Like you don't know why a specific brain is showing these metabolic reductions, which is why I think we need um, the amyloid scans and the tau scans as well to be specific. Like you want to say, yes, we do have these neuronal dysfunction, if you will, these neuronal changes, but they're not just due to you're having a bad day, you know, it's really that there's pathology there that is driving the changes. So we personally, I do all of these tests and we're really trying to understand um, how best to use them, like what is the best combination so that we can minimize the number of scans and really achieve the highest predictive accuracy. So valuable. So let's yeah. take a, When are you coming to do a brain scan? I would love to. I mean, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, you know, I've seen data where they can look at p- brains of 20-something-year-olds and see like a mildly reduced glucose metabolism. And so yeah, it's... Uh, yeah, we do too. Yeah. We, have, we have the data too. And I, what we have shown, which I think is, is quite important, is that those changes really occur in women earlier on than in men. And also by frequency, women tend to show these changes much more frequently than men of the same age. And we have shown that that's really related to hormonal changes in women, mostly. There are, there are other parameters, of course, that there's your medical history that is important, your genes are important, like you mentioned, and your lifestyle, of course, is super important, and you talk about it all the time. Um, but for women, once you really look at all these factors together, and you try to rank them from the most predictive to the least predictive, hormones always come up on top. Wow. Yeah, which is, so that's why I think it's so interesting because if you go to a doctor and discuss Alzheimer's disease and Alzheimer's prevention on risk reduction, would your often told is that you have to check your lipids, right? Your cholesterol, your triglycerides, your insulin levels. You need to, um, are you a smoker? Did you have a TBI? What's your genotype? Nobody asks you about hormones, right? Yeah. I mean, it's probably the last thing that doctors think about unless it just so happens to be part of the conversation. But we're trying to change this dialogue and really help every woman specifically understand that your hormones have an effect on your brain and the way your brain ages already in your 30s and 40s. So it's really shifting the timeline to a fairly young age, honestly. It's amazing. So what hormones are we talking about? 
specifically? So for women, the most important one is estradiol, which is the most potent form of estrogen. So estrogen comes in three different forms. There's one that we make only when we're pregnant. There's estradiol, which we have throughout our entire lives until menopause. And then there's estrone that is made uh, as a plan B after menopause, once estradiol is no longer uh, made in the body and brain. And it's really estradiol that's been linked to energy metabolism in women's brains. So these hormones literally pushes neurons to burn glucose to make energy. So if your estradiol is high as a woman, your brain energy is high. But if estradiol goes down, then your neurons also slow down and start aging faster. And for most women, that happens in your late 40s, early 50s. But for other women, it happens earlier, very often, sometimes because of genetics, but sometimes really because of medical interventions. And we never talk about this. So many women receive hysterectomies with or without an ophorectomy at a fairly young age. I mean, often before age 40. And that's really the surgical removal of the uterus and or the ovaries that literally plunges women into menopause almost overnight. And it's due to a sudden loss of estrogens. And what I'm concerned about is that one in nine American women gets this procedure done, sometimes because of fibroids. You know, you have fibroids, they hurt, and the doctor is like, I'm just going to take out your uterus. It's kind of common practice to do that. But we know, the, the brain people know, that taking out the uterus and especially the ovaries prior to menopause increases risk of Alzheimer's disease in women. Sometimes the relative risk is as high as 70%. So we really need to talk about this because so many women go through these procedures and they're not told of the potential effects on the health of their brains in the future. So it's something that we're really trying to to raise awareness about. Yeah. So what are some options then for women who, I mean, I, fibroids, I'm like, I, I, what are fibroids? You're like, what? Yeah. <laughs> I know. Well, fibroids are things that hurt. You have them in your uterus and they make you miserable. And, and I totally understand why people just want to get rid of them. But there's no, re- there's no particular reason to take out your ovaries hmm. as you get these procedures done. It's just that it's a simpler procedure if you just take out a bunch of things rather than just, you know, a targeted surgery. And I think the reason that the, it's been done that way is just the brain people don't really talk to OBGYNs and the other way around. Like I, I have talked to so many in just the past few years and everybody's like, oh, my God, we need to we need to talk about this. You know, we need to think about it. What are the numbers? What are the stats? What can we do? What we what can we not do? So I think it's, it's really, we're changing the conversation. And one thing that seems very important for women who do get these procedures before menopause is estrogen replacement therapy. Hmm. It this, really seems to support brain health after surgery. Got it. So you want to make sure that you, so estrogen then and estradiol, which is the most potent form of estrogen, it's protective and what happens either late in life or with the removal of the uterus and especially the ovaries is that basically that safety rug gets pulled out from beneath the, the brain's feet, essentially. Is that, is that a, yeah, a fair no, characterization? Absolutely. absolutely. Sometimes I talk about estrogen as having a superpower in the brain. So both estrogens for women and testosterone for men are very energizing hormones all throughout the body and brain. They're involved in brain energy levels, they support growth, they support plasticity, they support immunity. For women, we say that estrogen is the master regulator in the female brain. It's like the orchestra director that makes everything happen smoothly and in harmony. So it's really like having a superpower. But then what happens is that testosterone in men doesn't quite run out until later on in life, usually after age 70. Sure, there's a little bit of a decline, but it's not sudden. And for many men, it doesn't even take place until you're, you're much older. Like, I think Mick Jagger just had another kid. He must be 80. He must be, right, Rolling Stones? He's a pretty, pretty old guy at this point. But yeah. for we- 
I think so, yeah. But he just had another kid. And that's an example of male fertility that can last really into old age. For women instead, our estrogens really fade away pretty pretty quickly hmm. relative to a woman's lifespan in midlife during menopause. And that's a stage where your body, as much as your brain, is really losing the superpowers of estrogen. And your brain is left a little bit on its own. You know, it has to it has to adjust. It has to kind of remodel a little bit and get it together. And it's a very well-known transition state for women's brains. There are three. There's puberty, which both men and women go through, obviously. Pregnancy, which only affects women's brains. And perimenopause or menopause, which, you know, happens midlife only for women and not men. So these are big times, these are, these are big moments in the life of a woman's brain, and we just don't know that much about these this transition stages, even though, you know, women are half of the population and all women go through menopause. And this is something that we never talk about. We don't get educated about. We have very limited information about. And so many women in their 30s and 40s, honestly, don't even quite know what menopause is to start with, or how to know when it happens to you or not. So I think it's really important to talk about it in a safe and comfortable way and also scientifically valid way. Yeah, super important. I couldn't agree more. So, I mean, that that leads us to the, the next uh, log- the, the next question would, would logically, that would logically follow would be, so what can women do pre-menopause to support their brains and to make sure that their estrogen levels are, you know, uh, are optimized um, in a way that helps support their brain function. And then for women who are postmenopausal, because, you know, I mean, I have a lot of right. women in that in that phase of life who listen to my podcast as well. So what can we tell them about how to protect their brains? Right. So there are quite many, there are many things that women can do to support their hormones and their effects on the brain. And some are based on medications like hormonal replacement therapy, which is controversial, but if you would like, I'm happy to talk about it. And other things that really lifestyle-based, they're really about your lifestyle and your environment and how to optimize them so that they're supportive of your brain and your hormones as well. Which one would you like first? Uh, well, let's talk about <laughs> pre, pre, yeah, pre-menopause, what women could do. Um, and... You know, I mean, I definitely want to focus on on women's brains because I love women's brains. But you know, also if there are takeaways for the for the fellas in the audience as yes, well. Of course, and actually, I think that this is a wonderful conversation to have uh, with men as well. Actually, I've been doing so many podcasts with with your friends, <laughs> <laughs> all men. It's so incredible, and everybody's like, "Whoa." <laughs> Well, I just Is want that gonna happen for real. <laughs> well, here's the thing, Lisa. We take women's health very seriously here at the Genius Life. I've done a number of episodes ranging from biohacking the female body, and my listeners, you know, they they appreciate it. And so, uh, yeah, I'm all about it. I'm all about like helping women get healthier. Because I mean, another topic that you talk about in the book, or or you know, just a a fact is that a lot of the research that we have in the field of nutrition is performed primarily on men. And I think that's such a shame. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So there's this term that they use in the book. It's called bikini medicine, which is funny in some ways, but is also problematic in many other ways. And it really describes how historically medical professionals really believed that women were essentially smaller men with different reproductive organs, those parts of the body that will fit under a <laughs> bikini, right? So hence bikini medicine, which is very disruptive in that, um, re- you know, the outcome was that women were actually excluded from research for a really long time, in part because people honestly believed that you could just do the research in men, not bother the women, especially if the, you know, women of childbearing age that was the, the thing, you know, that you didn't want to do research on women who could potentially get pregnant and then have trouble with the pregnancies. And people would be like, well, okay, I'll just do the research in men. I don't have to deal with menstrual cycles and PMS and all that stuff. And whatever I find in men, I'll just give to women as well or apply to women as well. And that would make sense if our organs were the same, right? So if you're thinking, I'm going to, I have this drug for heart disease and I tested in men, 
based on the assumption that men's hearts are the same as women's hearts, then it's okay to give it to women as well. But unfortunately, it turns out that our organs may look the same, again, except for the bikini parts, Hmm. but they don't function the same way. Our brain doesn't function exactly the same way. Our hearts don't really function the same way to the point that doctors are not trained to recognize the symptoms of a heart disease or a heart attack in women. Like the, the typical thing that we all talk about is the pain in your, le- you know, in the chest and down your left arm. That happens to men, not really to women. Women feel like they have the flu. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So you feel nauseous. You have pain in your stomach. You have pain in your neck. It's an interesting one. In the back of your neck, in your shoulders, you may feel like you have a cold sweat. You may, you may get a fever. But those are not the typical symptoms of a heart attack, right? And so that means that women have a 700% higher chance of being dismissed or discharged from the ER in the middle of having a heart attack. That is just, I mean, that's shocking. It's shocking. 700%, seven times higher chance of being sent home. Because women believe that they should experience chest pain, but that's really a symptom that primarily men get. Women get flu-like symptoms. That's that's crazy. It's insane. And that was only found out um, in the year 2001, like in a, in a, you know, in a solid, robust JAMA paper. It's not that long ago. And it's really, it's really changing the way that we're understanding gender medicine and how important it really is. And the same is for the brain. Like we were saying before that women tend to get Alzheimer's in their brains earlier than men. However, we don't show it as much because their brains just function differently and we end up having better memory anyway. And so people don't recognize the symptoms perhaps, which leads to women be probably underdiagnosed until dementia is more severe and more difficult to treat. Drugs for Alzheimer's disease were never tested separately in men and in women. Like all clinical trials just combined them together and never looked uh, gender differences. The only trial that actually did was Aricept, which is the most common Alzheimer's drug ever. And they found that the drug works better for men. Yeah, my mother was on Aricept and it didn't do anything for her. And actually, you might find this, uh, I mean, equal parts sad, but amusing that when my mom first began to develop uh, symptoms of what would ultimately be diagnosed as, uh, as a form of dementia, a psychiatrist that she was seeing thought that all of her symptoms were basically due to depression, you know, a, su- know. a pseudo-dementia. And oh my so, God, it happens all the time. Yeah. It happens all the time. The women's complaints or concerns are constantly dismissed as being hypochondriac. And women just keep getting these, re- these prescriptions for antidepressants. You know, you go to the ER, you get antidepressants. You go to your doctor, you get antidepressants. But you're not depressed. It's just that everything around women seems to be related to, you know, oh, you poor thing. Must be your hormones. Here, take some Xanax or Oh, my God. And it's really something that needs to change. It's not fair. And you were talking about the field of nutrition, I think, is is kind of the same in that there's a bias because very few studies looked at um, optimal nutrition for the brain uh, in women as being different from men. And these studies have shown that there are some differences. Again, it's not huge differences, but there are some differences. And it's not about being better or worse. Right. It's just about optimization and knowing uh, what kind of nutrients, for example, are most beneficial for you at different stages of life. And I think they're a little bit different between women and men. Like like you always say, fats are great for a man's body because your metabolism is such that you can handle fats in an outstanding way. Not all women do. So that's up to you. However, women handle antioxidants great for example, right? And we really need them in the diet. So we should talk about getting more of these antioxidant-loaded um, foods, especially starting in midlife, for example, f- to, for women, but also after, after menopause. I would say, for me, that's the number one nutrient for women's brains. It's really antioxidants and your beloved omega-3 fatty acids. Uh, what type <laughs> of antioxidants in particular? Research has shown that three antioxidant vitamins are really great for women's brains. And my studies showed that um, 
a higher intake of vitamin C, vitamin E, and beta-carotene correlate with higher brain energy levels starting mm. in midlife wow. and throughout old age. And it's a very strong correlation that we didn't quite find for men. It was very specific to women, which is not to say that men don't need them, right? It's just to say that the correlation was very, was particularly strong in women regardless of age. And these vitamins are found in foods that I believe everybody considers healthy, like vegetables and nuts and seeds and some fruits. So I think it's pretty much a universal recommendation that, that can be made that seems to be particularly helpful to women's brain health. What's your favorite antioxidant? Oh, man. Well, I love the ones that, that you mentioned, but I'm also a big fan. You, I mean, beta-carotene is a carotenoid. There are uh, three additional carotenoids that I'm, that I'm a huge fan of. Mm -hmm. um, lutein, zeaxanthin, right. and then astaxanthin, which is a marine right. carotenoid. Right. I, I was thinking foods. Like what's your what's your oh, favorite antioxidant food? Yeah, my brain. Do you eat fruit anymore? Maybe not. Do I do I eat fruit? Yeah, I love fruit. I mean, I you do. Yeah, I eat whole fruit. Um, I don't. The only fruit juice that I consume is extra virgin olive oil. Uh, um, nice. but but yeah, whole fruit I I enjoy. I don't go overboard with the fruit consumption. I think like, you know, I take a more liberal approach to vegetables and maybe low mm -hmm. sugar fruit. But uh, right. I'm more moderate with my high sugar fruits. Like I don't really, I don't often right. eat pineapple, bananas, you know, but I'll have like a honey, like a honey crisp apple uh, a day. Mm. Do you, have you ever tried pink lady apple? You know, I, I have. I love them. They're good. They're good. I have to say, I, I think honey crisps are my favorite. Although there's a new variant, it's called the cosmic crisp. And I haven't seen Ooh. it at my local uh, supermarket yet, but I've heard that it's a, a game changer. I haven't, I haven't yet tried it. I, I want to try. I love apples. I'm kind of obsessed with apples. But you know what's interesting about fruit is that um, so I am, I'm the director of the Women's Brain Initiative and I'm also associate director of the Alzheimer's Prevention Clinic at Wild Cornell. And we always recommend Dr. Isaacson, who's a great friend, always recommends to focus on low G GI fruits, like especially berries. And research in women shows that if you consume, as a woman, about three servings of berries a week, specifically two servings of strawberries and one of blueberries, that was really associated with slower rates of cognitive decline, specifically in women. And if you also eat a bit higher GI foods, like melon, cantaloupe, pineapple, and mango, you also have better hormonal health which is interesting to me because, you know, we, we try to, to go for the low GI fruits, but it was interesting because these other fruits, they do have a slightly higher glycemic load, but they're very rich in phytoestrogens. And that's something that we never talk about, very few people talk about in terms of nutrition, like the hormonal potential of foods. And I find that fascinating because Estrogen is the most ancient of hormones, so it can really go across species, which is beautiful if you think about it. Then a fruit can contain estrogens or a plant can make estrogens that can work in a woman's body. It really speaks to how nature is all correlated with, you know, it works really in harmony, which I find it, I find it very beautiful. And these phytoestrogens work like estrogens in our own bodies. But they're mild, they have very mild effects. They're, they're not disruptive of hormonal health. There's soy, of course, it's the most uh, charged in terms of phytoestrogens, but it's controversial and honestly doesn't quite taste that good. Whereas other foods that contain phytoestrogens can be very helpful, I think, for women's health. And those are, you know, these fruits I just mentioned, as well as dried apricots and sesame seeds and flax seeds are really, really helpful to women's health. So you just to put it on everybody's radar. Uh, should men avoid those foods then if they contain high levels of phytoestrogens? That I don't know. There isn't, there isn't much research in men. I think it's, it's unlikely that you would eat so many of these foods that your hormonal balance would, would really be turned around as a man, I think, right? But I actually I don't know. 
Interesting. It's an interesting question. Um, I, I personally, it's an interesting question. Yeah. Um, in your in your book, which is amazing, the XX brain, you also talk about uh, watching out for xenoestrogens. So these are not phytoestrogens, but these are um, industrial compounds that have an estrogen mimicking effect in the body. But those you say are actually we want to avoid those as opposed to the phytoestrogens, which might actually play a helpful role. Is that right. is that correct? Yes, yes, yes. This is, so xenoestrogens are like the evil cousin or the evil twin of your actual estrogens. And they're, they're usually man-made compounds that turned out to be toxic and really disruptive of hormonal health, especially for women, pregnant women, and children. And for a long time, scientists really did not buy into this. But more recently, even the American uh, Association of Neuroendocrinology uh, put out a warning um, saying that these estrogen-disrupting compounds or EDCs are really a health hazard and should be avoided as much as possible. And these are things that come from the environment a lot. They're pesticides. Many pesticides contain um, estrogen-disrupting compounds. Uh, plastics are very – I would say these are the top two issues unless you're a construction worker and you're exposed to toxins like because of your job but for most people it's really about your diet um your household right and the place where you live yeah you have a very interesting background you're obviously a neuroscientist but you have an expertise in nutrition and you make the recommendation that when possible people should opt for organic yes i think it's it's better safe than sorry, in a way. There isn't a ton of, ed of evidence that organic is better than non-organic. However, there, is, there really isn't that much research that really looked into this in a consistent way. And, and for me, it's really about common sense. I don't want to eat pesticides. We know that they do disrupt hormonal health. They've been associated with a number of issues, especially in women, from thyroid disease to miscarriages, infertility, breast cancer. And um, there's, there's some research showing that environmental pollutants are also associated with a higher risk of dementia, especially for some people with um, the APOE4 genotype, which is a genetic risk factor for Alzheimer's disease. But I think in general, it's just better to, to eat healthy foods and not take risks because you know after all we all eat maybe you don't but most people eat three times a day every day so you have three chances every day or more to really feed your brain with nutrients and foods that can support it and improve it or do exactly the opposite and really sabotage your health by eating the wrong foods so yeah. for me, I really try to go organic as much as I can. Of course, there are financial considerations, but, you know, I'm a woman. I, I'm the mom of a little girl. You just heard her cry. Mm. Um, and this is really important to me also as a brain scientist. Like I want to make the right choices and I'm waiting for more evidence that that's the right thing to do. But it'll come. I, I bet they will have it. How do you feel about it? Yeah, well, I th it's just so important that, um, you know, like the message that, that, that you're conveying is that sometimes you have to make decisions um, in the absence of data, you know, right. and, and as a scientist, you know, I can imagine very hard. you would prefer to have data, of course, mm -hmm. but, um, but sometimes you just have to have like a guiding philosophy and you have to make decisions and, and they have to be guided by, uh, in, in some way, belief and um, the way that I look at it is organic, you know, if everything could be not just organic, but like regenerative organic, you know, not right. industrial organic, but from farmers, you know, we know their names, they're in our, you know, they're, uh, local to our, to our environments. I mean, that would be ideal, but that's not practical or realistic. So the, the, what I do is I just buy, if I'm eating the skin or the peel, I buy organic right. and, you know, I, I know that organic is not perfect. You know, the, the industrial farming system is just, you know, it's, it's an imperfect system. It's got to feed a, a massive population and it's decentralized mm. and we don't necessarily know where our food comes from. But at the end of the day, you have to make decisions. And I think, as you said, why take risks? Right. But you don't have if to. You can, if you can avoid it, I think it's great to avoid it. Like, so I grew up in Italy. 
and specifically in Florence, and we were right by the countryside, and all the food was fresh. Right? There was no question. There's no need to say organic or initially we say biological. And it was just fresh food. And, and then I moved to the United States when I was like 20-something, and I just had no idea what I was eating. You know, I was just like, what is this? <laughs> it's chicken. Well, but it doesn't taste like chicken. It doesn't feel like chicken. And then I found out organic chicken. I was like, what? Well, this is the real thing. And it's like cage-free or free-range and pasture-raised. And it, it really, I think if you're used to the real thing, you can taste the difference. And that for me is a big, it's a big motivator. Yeah. Um, so we've talked about beta carotene, we've talked about vitamin C, we've talked about vitamin E. Um, what are some other things that be, you know, foods, uh, you, you talk a lot about water, both in in your first book, brain food, as well as your latest book, the XX brain. Talk to us about, uh, about water. Why is water so important for the brain and then staying hydrated, generally speaking? Right. It is so fascinating to me that people love that about water. They did it sounds like, oh, that really makes so much sense. <laughs> Takes a scientist to talk about water. But um, the truth is that the brain is 80% water. And every chemical reaction that takes place in the brain needs water to really occur. Like water is the main substrate for the vast majority of chemical reactions that take place in a person's brain, including energy production. If you don't have enough water you can't make enough energy inside your brain. And I think that's really important to to appreciate because even just very mild dehydration, like a 2 to 4% water loss, which is nothing, can cause neurological symptoms like uh, dizziness, confusion, brain fog is a really big one, um, and like lack of attention, fatigue is another big big symptoms that is often due to mild dehydration. Severe dehydration is obviously worse, but even mild dehydration will do that to you. And brain scans, MRI scans, have shown that if you're chronically dehydrated, your brain literally loses volume. And that's not something, right? You don't want that. And that can just be easily corrected by by just drinking, drinking water. There, There are some studies where people were dehydrated at first just a little bit and then put in a machine and then they were scanned before and after drinking more water and really uh, recuperating their their volume their fluid volume and it's quite amazing how the brain really just plumps up but when you drink enough water so i think it's important that we all really focus on drinking enough and there isn't like a universal amount of water that people should drink. But when they say drink at least eight glasses of water, that makes sense in many ways because that's pretty much the amount of fluids that we tend to lose in, in, a, in a day, just naturally by moving around and doing your things. So it's good to replenish at least the same amount of water that you've lost throughout the day and night. It's very good to drink first thing in the morning because obviously you don't drink during the night and your body has a higher chance of getting dehydrated overnight. So personally, I drink a big glass of water first thing in the morning and I, I really I find that it really wakes me up quite a bit. And I love my coffee, but <laughs> I think a good glass of water is, is a great way to just get your body and brain uh, going in the morning. And one thing I always mention is that um, real water has electrolytes in it. It's not just fluids, it's fluids and salts and minerals. And you don't get those in filtered or purified water. That's basically just fluids. So it's really important to either drink like tap water if it's clean or spring water if possible. Or if you're drinking filtered or purified water for whatever reasons, then it's really important to also consider taking some electrolytes along with it. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, in light of the discussion that we, you know, we had on environmental toxins, endocrine disrupting compounds, um, and the just the the science that's showing us how ubiquitous these compounds are all over the United States in our bodies mm-hmm. and in our drinking water. I I use a reverse osmosis water purifier in my own home because I just don't trust mm-hmm. the pipes and I, you know, uh, right. and so yeah. So I mean, do you? 
recommend that people drink filtered water or not? And if they do drink filtered purified water, what types of, I mean, how do you, how do you re-add electrolytes to purified water? Mm. Mm-hmm. So I just went through a thorough exploration of this because I just redid my kitchen. I got the kitchen redone and they really wanted to have an under the sink filter. And so it turns out that something you can do, something that probably everybody can do is to have, have your water tested. So you call the city and they come to your house and they do a number of tests and they test the water as soon as it gets out of the faucet and then they shut down the water, wait a little bit, and test it again because that's the water that's really in your pipes, that stays in your pipes. And so you can find out if your water is good, but your pipes are not, and the other way around. And you can kind of, you get like a very thorough report. And then you can get a filter that is the best one for the water and pipes that you have yourself. So I don't know if anyone wants to go through that. I, I did because I, I drink pretty much only water. It's one of the very few things I drink and they really care about the quality of my water. So we did it and we're going to get a filter that is very specifically going to address um, our water situation. In general, if you can do that um, and you don't want to just get some filter, I'm sure you have recommendations. But if you do drink purified water or filtered water, which is by far the majority of people in the United States, then I think it could be helpful to take electrolytes. There are some oral IV salts that I like and I, I've used them sometimes. And it's really sodium and glucose. They're the, the number two, the, the top two. But then just like coconut water, it's a nice way to rehydrate unless you're worried about the sugars. And otherwise, there are a number of op- options. I don't know. Do you have a preference? Um, sometimes I'll use a little bit of sea salt or not right. sea salt. Um, I, I use a salt from uh, from a company called Redmond, which I really like. And mm. they, they've sponsored my podcast uh, in the past. But, you know, so, I mean, that's that's mm-hmm. like my disclosure. But even before that, I was a huge fan because it comes from an underground um like dehydrated lake in Utah. So it's untouched nice. by, by pollution and it, it's primarily sodium, obviously, but it's going to have other trace minerals. And then right. I also, there's a product that I get on Amazon. It's, I think it's actually just called trace minerals. And I have no affiliation with this company, but, um, it's, uh, it's, it's to remineralize. It's specifically a, it's a product, um, made to help you remineralize water and it even comes with like tiny amounts of like lithium in it which (laughs) (laughs) which you know you can find in drinking water (laughs) yeah i mean you find it in drinking water and there seems to be an association people who have you know there seems to be less risk for developing alzheimer's disease in parts of the world where or in municipalities that have higher levels of lithium in the drinking water and they have much better moods (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) yeah that's true that's true yeah um, I, I would also argue that sometimes when I talk about spring water, people would say to me, you know, it's really expensive. And I, at first I thought, well, you know better than me, right? But it's not that expensive. It's actually much cheaper than soda or juice. So I, I think that could be a nice, you know, treat in some ways. Sometimes, baby, stay away from the electrolytes and the purified water and just treat yourself to actual water. Why not? Yeah. Drinking water, drinking more fluids. It seems so, I don't know, like such a simple recommendation. Do you have any way that people might know whether or not they need more water? I mean, should you be looking at the color of your urine? Like what are some markers that people might be able to use? Yeah, that's a great idea. So first thing in the morning, if your urine is not clear, that could be a sign that you need to drink more water and that you're mildly dehydrated. I also have a quick tip that I I always do that with my patients before they do brain scans because there are procedures that need to be done. So I really need their veins to pop and it's it's hard if you're not well hydrated. And so I always say to them, let's do this. Let's get warm water. What's important about warm water is that it's a vasodilator. It really makes your veins pop and it improves uh, the rate at which your body absorbs the water, the fluids, and the electrolytes, and then, you know, the minerals. Whereas cold water is a vasoconstrictor. 
so it makes your veins get smaller and it's harder to get an IV in, right? And so I want to make sure that they're hydrated before I even tell them that they need to drink more water so that I can get the procedure going. And one very simple trick is to have a bottle of warm water and take very small sips, like every 30 seconds, one small sip. 30 seconds later, another small sip. 30 seconds later, a bigger one. If after a couple of minutes it feels good and you feel like your mouth feels a little bit parched, then you need more water. It means you're dehydrated and you need to drink the entire bottle. Very interesting. Wow. And the warm water tip, I mean, that's useful. Yeah. So warm water is... You know, is... where did I learn that? What? I learned that. I don't know if you know that. I'm Initially, I'm a licensed paramedic. Wow. I, did, I, <laughs> yes. I didn't know that. Yeah. I started as soon as I was 18 because in Italy, the ambulance service is public. So the only way that we have ambulances is, is, is if people volunteer. And once you volunteer, which is pretty much everybody in Tuscany where I was born, uh, you have to take a number of exams. And if you pass all the exams, then you get the license as a paramedic. And I, I learned that during my years on the ambulance doing red codes, we call them, which are emergencies. And very often you have to put a line in, in, in very critical situations. And the first thing we were doing is to give people warm water to really minimize, you know, missing. Yeah. Really. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. I did, I did not know that about you. Um, well, <laughs> we're, we're almost out of time. I just want to close the loop quickly, um, before we get to the last question, but for women who are postmenopausal, cause I, yeah. I, I feel like we didn't close the loop on that. So right. is hormone replacement therapy something to look into? What are, are there specific nutritional recommendations that postmenopausal women can adopt? What's uh, right. Yeah. Right. So hormonal replacement therapy, which is now called menopausal hormonal therapy, is not actually recommended for women who are more than five years post-menopause, depending on what we're talking about. So we're, if we're concerned about an increased risk of heart disease, then the window is a little bit wider and um, you shouldn't take hormonal therapy if you're more than 10 years post-menopause. But brain studies have shown that you should not be taking hormones, you should not be starting hormones if you're more than five years post-menopause. So the best window of opportunity for hormonal therapy is actually closer to the age of menopause, which is um, when you're more than 12 months past your last period, that, that puts you in menopause. Um, hormonal therapy seems to be perhaps more beneficial to women who are not yet in menopause, but we really need to do more research to establish that um, as far as our brain health and cognition are concerned. So for women who are post-menopause, there are a number of things that are very important, and I would encourage everyone to think of their brains more like a muscle, right? There are you can, you can feed your brain correctly. You can exercise your brain properly. You can take care of your, prop, of your brain properly and your brain will perform so much better for you at any age. And something that has been shown to be really important after menopause is gentle exercise. You know, we know that exercise is a preventative against Alzheimer's disease for both men and women. But research shows that Number one, women don't exercise as much as men do to start with at any age, but especially after menopause. And number two, for women who do exercise, the risk of Alzheimer's disease is the benefit in terms of Alzheimer's prevention may even exceed that in men. Perhaps because we don't work out enough to start with. But it's really interesting, I think, that there are studies showing, these are beautiful studies, by the way, it's like hundreds of people followed for 20 years or more, really showed how um, middle-aged women who are physically active have a 30% lower risk of dementia later in life as compared to women who are sedentary. This is midlife, but later on, after age 60, 65, the benefit may not be 30%, but it's still in the 15 to 20% range, which is amazing because if I had a drug that lowered the risk of Alzheimer's disease by 20%, everybody would buy it, right? And I would be rich. Yeah. 
All right. Instead, we're scientists, and the prescription is really to to exercise, to keep your body moving. Yeah, I definitely. Exercise would be if you could put that in a pill, bottle it up, it'd be a blockbuster, blockbuster drug for sure. Right. Um, well. Right. Lisa, you're amazing. Thank you so much for um, for your time and your expertise. Uh, I encourage everybody that's listening to pick up uh, Lisa's new book. It's called The XX Brain. Follow her work closely. I do. Um, uh-huh. And uh, yeah, Dr. Moscone, I got just one last question for you. But before we get to that, yeah. um, where can listeners uh, pick up your book? And are you on social media? Yeah. Uh, so listeners can pick up my book pretty much everywhere, Barnes and Nobles, Amazon, any bookstores. And then am I on social media? So I'm too sensitive for Twitter. <laughs> I just can't do that. But I am on Instagram and I really like it. And my handle is Dr. D-R underscore Moscone, M-O-S-C-O-N-I. Got it. Thank you for that. Um, so the last question that gets asked everybody on the show, what does it mean to you to live a genius life? Ooh, what does it mean? I think it means really to to make smart choices about my lifestyle, my environment, and my health. I think we all need to be really smart about taking care of ourselves and their brains, and it takes discipline, but the benefits are for life. And I, I always try to encourage everyone to think of their brains as their best friends, and really make choices that you would make to, to take care of, of your best friend or somebody that you really, really love and, and care about. I love it. Well, thank you for that. That's beautiful. Um, yeah. Appreciate your time. To all you guys out there in podcast land, thank you so much for tuning in. Take care of your best friend, <laughs> as Dr. Moscone said. Send me a text. Let me know what you thought about this episode of the show. If you live in the U.S. or Canada, I'm at 310 310- Spread the message about what we're doing here at The Genius Life. Share this episode of the show. Pick up Dr. Moscone's new book, The XX Brain, and I will catch you on the next episode. Peace out, y'all.